On this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, Bill Crowder and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day and Rasul Berry invite you to take a seat at the table with them to talk about the much-anticipated return of Christ. Now, few theological issues generate such vigorous debate as does eschatology, the study of the last days or end times. Do you have questions about that? I'll bet you do. We do too. And I won't promise that we can answer all the questions, but we will have some helpful and hopeful conversations in a series called, He's Coming Back. The important thing is Jesus is coming back. We can have a really healthy discussion, debate, however you want to frame it, on the mechanics of how that may or may not operate. But the big idea is he said, I will come again, and I believe him. And that reminds me of the statement of faith that Christians have actually agreed Mm. on Mm -hmm. for thousands of years, which is Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Yeah. Yeah, he's coming back. Be part of that conversation on this edition of the Discover the Word podcast. Welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Looking forward to spending the next hour or so together talking about the return of Christ. And as I said, this kind of discussion can easily turn into conflict because there is disagreement about it and how to interpret what the Bible says about how and when Jesus comes back. And so we'd like to talk about some of the views and the theological debate around this event that the church and followers of Jesus have been waiting for for a really long time. And we'd also like to talk about some dangers and cautions associated with the topic as well. I think it's gonna be a profitable time. So let's dive right into this first conversation as Bill leads Elisa and Daniel and Rasul in this series called, He's Coming Back. On May 11th, 1970, an event happened that would shape people in a variety of circumstances for a couple of generations, actually. It was the release of a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. Yes. You ever heard of that book? Mm-mm. No. <laughs> heard, of oh. heard of it? Yeah. Oh, man, it ruled the yeah. world around me. It took a person's interpretation of scriptures and put it into the mainstream of public thought. There were people who had never darkened the door of a church who were just devouring that. And it really brought in-time thinking into the culture in a very significant way. Then some 20-some years later, you had the Left Behind series, Mm -hmm. which did the same thing, only in a fictional format. It's just an interesting thing for those of us who are followers of Christ We know one of the major areas of theology that we study and talk about and think about is eschatology. So what does eschatology mean? Study of the last things, like the eschaton. Yeah, the the last things or end things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to be fair, people who name Christ are all over the map on these issues. There are a lot of different views held by really solid Christ-loving people. So what we want to do in this series of conversations is think about what we can know about the return of Jesus. And one of the first things we can know about the return of Jesus is that he promised he would return. Mm -hmm. And we see Mm -hmm. that promise given in John 14, verses 1 through 3. Elisa, would you read that for us, get us started? You bet. Do not let your heart be troubled. 
believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And obviously the return promise is, I will come again and receive you. Now, what's the context of this in John 14? What's going on? Well, this is the upper room. And so Jesus is with his disciples and he's just washed their feet Mm. and really given them this beautiful picture of his love for them and his father's love for them through him. He's given them a new commandment, which is a surprising moment in this Mm -hmm. conversation. And that new commandment is to love one another just as he has loved them. And then Jesus tells Peter that Peter is going to say some things he's going to regret, including denying Christ. And then right after that, Mm -hmm. we get to this section. There's another really significant piece to this that John doesn't record, but the other gospels do. What was the primary reason why they had gathered in that upper room that night? For Passover. To celebrate Passover. Mm -hmm. Passover was remembering the exodus of Mm -hmm. Israel out of Egypt. And so here you have Jesus promising his followers, I will come back and take you to a new home. And it's almost a reflection of Moses came and led them out of Egypt to a land of promise that would be their new home. There's some interesting parallels between the Exodus story and what Jesus's promise is. And I don't think we need to push them too hard, but there's certainly some echoes there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somebody said history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Mm -hmm. And here I think we hear this promise rhyming with the Exodus story. So as you look at John 14, one through three, what are some of the key elements that you notice about Jesus's words? Well, I think the first, and as you go down further into John 14, you realize that not only is there this Passover, but it's also known as the Last Supper. And he's announcing and describing the fact that, hey, guys, this is this is it. You're not going to be seeing me for a while. Mm-hmm. And that comes with anxiety yeah. for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't like to hear that. Who yeah. would? This person that they've now identified as the Messiah, their Lord, that they've spent three years with is now leaving. They don't really know what that means. That's Mm -hmm. not really meeting their expectations of Mm -hmm. how things were going to fly. And so he says at the beginning, he's trying to allay their concerns. Don't be worried about this. You know, we've talked in a lot of conversations about the importance of trust. Life is messy and it doesn't have answers and it doesn't go according to our timetable. And here's like such a powerful example. And he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You know, that's pretty much all we need right there. Yeah. And I think that's such a helpful way to set up this whole series, (laughs) but especially this conversation, because if there's one thing that causes our hearts to be troubled, often it's thinking about topics like this, whether it's, Yeah. yeah, whether it's the stress of not knowing, whether it's the stress of we have four people around the table, and if we really got into the depth of what we believe about the end times, we might disagree, and it might cause breaking in relationship or something like that. Or the very real like stress that some people have experienced because of how overemphasized the return of Christ is, and they don't know what to do today. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about all of that together, what encouraging words that Jesus starts with, do not let your hearts mm-hmm. be troubled. Trust in God, trust in me. You know me. Mm -hmm. And of course, here he's talking directly to his disciples. Mm -hmm. We've been together. We've spent a lot of time together. You know me. 
You know I care about you. You know I want to do what's best for you. You know I will do what's best for you. So regardless of what happens from this point forward, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. Yeah, I think the reminder to ourselves on a continual basis, no matter what I'm facing in my life, God's got this. Mm -hmm. And I can trust him with it. If it's a situation where there's a challenge that one of my kids or grandkids is facing, I'm not sufficient for that, but God's got this, you know. And I think what you're saying, Daniel, is Jesus is kind of telling him, listen, don't get all filled with anxiety. I've got this. It's going to be okay. And then he starts talking about results. Because he's got this, some things he says are going to happen. Mm. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. I mean, Mm -hmm. you said that the father's love was expressed to us through Jesus, Daniel. And that's exactly right. And the father's love is so profound. He wants us to come and live at his house forever. There's there's so much misinterpretation Mm -hmm. about that. You know, I get my mansion in heaven and you get to live next door to me. And, you know, we'd extrapolate that. What, What do we do with that? One of the things that jumps out to me is in Jewish culture, when you get married, you get engaged, and then what do you do? You go to your father's house and you add on to your father's house, and And then you bring your bride into the the house. house. Maybe Jesus is alluding to that here, this idea that, hey, I gotta go away a little while because I gotta go build the house, Mm -hmm. and this will be our engagement period, Mm -hmm. and then I'll come back and get you and bring you into the house. And the church is referred to as the bride of Christ Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. scripture, so that analogy really works. What you were saying about the almost the caricature mm-hmm. of it yeah. comes from the old King James Version where it says, in my father's house are many mansions. Mm-hmm. And the word mansions was kind of an unfortunate translation. It really just means dwelling places. Or in our current language, it could be apartments. Mm-hmm. You know, in my father's house, there's many places to live and I'm going to prepare one for you. And I think, you know, the whole, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. I mean, that's, there's some sentimental value to that, but that's really not what Jesus is promising here. And I think it's important for us to differentiate what the scripture says from what it's sometimes been caricatured to look like. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I want to just for a second go to something else you said a, a minute ago, Daniel, when you said if we got into a deep dive on this issue, we might find that we disagree around this table as to what the scriptures mean by what they say. That's where we get ourselves knotted up. And the fact of the matter is, long before late great planet Earth came out, there was a lot of friction and conflict in Christian circles about how people interpreted end times things. I mean, it's still a controversial issue today, even though it's not talked about nearly as much because the left behinds kind of waned and a lot of younger Christians like Daniel didn't even know about late great planet Earth, which is fine. (laughs) But I mean, there's still a certain tension point when we start talking about these things because we all naturally assume we're right. (laughs) And if we're right, that means somebody else, by definition, has to be wrong. And I know that there were some circles, especially back in the 80s, where if you didn't agree with their eschatology, you weren't considered a true Christian. Yeah. And that is really off the table as far as a possible outcome. Our views of eschatology have nothing to do with whether or not we're truly followers of Christ. That's all rooted in what Jesus did on the cross and how we respond. Yeah, I think the other thing that I tend to see as a distinction between this emphasis in John 14 and the way that oftentimes people talk about eschatology is the emphasis isn't on the specificity of 
wins, wears, like details. It's actually on comforting yeah. this community yeah. of people. And I think of even Revelation. I remember people being like, oh, don't read that book. It's scary. And I'm like, but the whole context of it is to offer comfort mm -hmm. that regardless of the suffering and the oppression and things that the people who John was writing to were experiencing, that that wasn't the end of the story, mm -hmm. right? You know, that in the end of the story, we win. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that sometimes those details and the fear behind mm -hmm. them cause people to do the exact opposite of what Jesus is admonishing here in the mm -hmm. first verse, which mm -hmm. is don't let your heart be troubled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, again, we get all knotted up about this and divide from one another, break fellowship with one another. And that is exactly the opposite of what I'd like for us to think about this week, because to me, the important thing is Jesus is coming back. We can have a really healthy discussion, debate, <laughs> however you want to frame it, on the mechanics of how that may or may not operate. But the big idea is he said, I will come again, and I believe him. And I do find that very comforting, especially as our world gets more and more tangled up in itself. The thought that Jesus could return today, that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean he will, and for 2,000 years he hasn't, but that doesn't mean he won't. Mm -hmm. So I think for our conversations in this series, I want us to think about end time things. And we're going to look at some stuff that's probably going to feel a little divisive, but that's okay. Everybody can have their opinion and we can still love and respect each other anyway. And that reminds me of the statement of faith that Christians have actually agreed mm. on mm -hmm. for thousands of years, which is Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Yeah. What are some areas where different Christian communities find themselves divided with one another? Speaking in tongues. Yeah, spiritual gifts. Mm -hmm. yeah. Methods and reasons for baptism. Yeah. Bible translation, mm -hmm. how yeah. to read the Bible. Whether or not women can be in the pulpit. Yeah, yeah. or in leadership at all. Mm -hmm. How frequently do you take communion? Mm -hmm. What happens to the bread and the wine? slash grape juice, Ooh. which might also be a debate. Yes. Yeah. Is it okay to be cremated or must we be buried? How much authority does a pastor have? We're <laughs> kind of a mess, aren't we? <laughs> I'm looking at Russell, and I think we're both kind of thinking, man, we are messed up. Um, <laughs> and we are kind of messed up. But What do we agree on, Bill? Well, the big idea of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scripture, that's the one thing that I think the vast majority of Christianity, regardless of their denominational circles, could rally to. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why that needs to be our primary focus a lot of the time, because we do get in the weeds on stuff. And the issue that we're talking about together in this set of conversations is another one of those that has tended to divide people over mm -hmm. the years. And it's what does the Bible say about last things, mm -hmm. the end times, if you will. And we're going to look at, over the next two conversations at the four major viewpoints and understand that each one of these four major viewpoints has an entire combo platter of iterations. <laughs> I mean, just all kinds of different details. And yeah, you got all these first 17 parts right, but you're wrong on number 18, so we can't have fellowship with each other. And that's really not what God has called us to as a church 
or as a people of God. He's called us to unity. Mm. And if the one thing we can rally around as one is that Christ died, Christ buried, Christ rose again, and then as the creed you reminded us of yesterday, mm-hmm. Daniel says, he's coming again. Mm. Christ died, Christ rose, he's coming again. And I think to try to understand the different viewpoints helps us to understand maybe better how to talk with each other about these issues. So our text for this conversation is Revelation 20, verses 1 through 4. Now, that may seem like an odd place to go, <laughs> but actually it is central to the end times conversation. So Revelation 20, verses 1 through 4. Rasul, would you read that for us? Sure. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Hey, did you notice a particular phrase that popped up several times in that text? A thousand years. A thousand years. Yeah. thousand years. thousand years. That is kind of the point of demarcation. How do you view that thousand years? And three out of the four major views is the main dividing point. And then once you decide how you're going to handle that very specific number that's repeated three times, How you handle that number then determines where you end up in your thinking about end-time things. So there are four major positions. Uh, The four major positions are the preterist view, and then interesting, post-millennial, millennial millennial meaning thousand years, pre-millennial, ah-millennial. So three of the four views, even their very name, interacts with thousand years. Mm -hmm. So in this conversation, we want to look at two of those views, and then in the next conversation, we'll pick up the other two. So uh, let's start with preterist. Uh, Anybody have any thinking on the preterist view? A little bit of the reading I've done about it, kind of the foundational idea comes from when Jesus talks about this generation will not pass away until the kingdom of God comes relating that to end times and seeing that Jesus made a promise to that generation. And so whatever the fulfillment of end times would be, it would be for that generation. So as a result of that, there were things that happened within that generation of Christ followers that they see as fulfillment of Mm -hmm. some of the symbolism, and they would reference it as symbolism and revelation. And all of that kind of happened within that one generation of Jesus. That's good. The name preterist comes from the Latin word praetor, which means past. So from our perspective, a preterist would be saying, all those things are past. All that's already happened. And now we're just waiting for him to return. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, there's an even more mainstream version of preterism, which is called partial preterism. And that's where it's like the majority of things were fulfilled. But there are a few things at the end of Revelation 
that we're still waiting for because it doesn't quite fit within that generation. And I haven't heard so much about it in the last 50 years or so. I think in some denominational circles, it is still a robustly held okay. view. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting is I came up as a Christian in a tradition where revelation was taken very literally, okay? And so when I went to seminary, I went to a different kind of seminary, and I took a class called Exile and Return, which is like Daniel, Esther, you know, all those books. (laughs) And the first day of class, the teacher came in and said, okay, before we get started, this is where we begin. There is no end-time prophecy in the book of Daniel. And I'm kind of like, wow, (laughs) we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. I mean, that was just like somebody hit me in the head with a bed slat or something. You know, it just completely knocked me off balance, which I think was what he was going for. Mm -hmm. And we started talking and dialoguing about it and everything. And he never convinced me of his view and I never convinced him of my view. But we were able to have a rational conversation without Mm -hmm. becoming enemies, Mm -hmm. which... Maybe that's the lesson in it. But you can't get much more of an extreme view than that. He said that everything in the book of Daniel was fulfilled in the Hasmonean dynasty of 100 B.C. And that's a view that is still held in some places yet today. So preterism is that everything was fulfilled in our past but in that generation following the days of Jesus. And the big landmark point in there is the destruction of the temple Mm -hmm. in 70 AD. I mean, that's kind of the break point Mm -hmm. for that generation as it's understood. So the second view is post-millennialism. The word post means after. Mm -hmm. Millennium means after the thousand years. So what this view basically taught was that the kingdom has already been established. It's run its course. And Jesus is going to come after it's over. Now, when you read texts like in the second half of Isaiah about what the kingdom is going to look like, you see much of that going on today? Not so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's not surprising at all to me that the major time in which this view was trending was prior to World War I. Mm. There was a lot of prosperity. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of growth in technology and health and a lot of those kind of things. And so people said, we're in the kingdom. This is it right here, right? And there was an idea called progressivism, not Mm. to be confused with a political Mm -hmm. framework, but this idea that the society would be, because of technology and advancements, was continually streaming almost in a steady line upward to diagonal. And that was not necessarily a Christian idea. It was just an idea in the culture. Mm -hmm. And so that idea kind of got latched onto and this idea, yeah, we're we're doing great. We're about to wrap this thing up until a global war using machines and technology that had never been used before in war that caused more destruction than ever been. And now all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute, maybe things aren't. Yeah, when reports started coming in from the front of what was really happening in World War I, it was hard to keep hanging on to post-millennialism because World War I was just the moral antithesis to all the kingdom stuff that they thought was coming. And think about the irony of that time. It was going well for some people. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But think about just in American culture alone, there were a whole group of people that were either had just come out of slavery or we're still experiencing slavery in different forms, because this is before the civil rights movement, before any of that. If you were to describe them as that time was peace and prosperity, I think they would disagree (laughs) because of the way they were being treated. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting when you start seeing these upshoots of different eschatological views, 
how those are speaking into the context of the culture at that moment. Right. And we'll talk about that more in the next one. And it really helps us understand, as you're directing us, Bill, to understand how our societal current realities can mm-hmm. affect how we view Scripture. Sure, that's right. All right, you're listening to Discover the Word and the group study in this episode of the podcast titled, He's Coming Back. Discover the Word is the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And your study partners for this series are Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry. And in that part of the conversation that you just heard, the uh, team explained a couple of common viewpoints about the end times, what are often called the preterist and post-millennial views, and how our cultural perspectives and current historical events may influence our understanding of the scriptures about this. Now, we'll focus on a couple more viewpoints when the group continues this discussion after this word about the Our Daily Bread devotional. At Our Daily Bread Ministries, we've been sharing the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible for more than 80 years. We started as a radio broadcast way back in 1938 called Radio Bible Class. And so it's actually close to 85 years. And out of our desire to encourage you to spend time with God daily, we also started putting together the Our Daily Bread devotional. And God has allowed that little booklet, now available in a variety of ways and in a number of different languages, to be something that millions around the world use for a few moments of connecting with God each day. And we're thankful that we can still offer the Our Daily Bread devotional free of charge. Just go to odb.org and you can read or you can listen to today's inspirational daily devotional right there. And you can also subscribe and choose how you'd like us to send it your way on a regular basis. Just click subscribe there at odb.org. And now the next part of this study on the Discover the Word podcast called He's Coming Back. Okay, what comes into your mind when I say the word apocalyptic? Mm. Um, I think of like World War Z. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Zombies. Zombie apocalypse. Yeah. I, I think of dystopian futures yeah. and yeah. some type of cataclysmic <laughs> crisis. Yeah, and the word's meaning has shifted. Mm-hmm. The actual word means revelation. The idea of the apocalypse, I mean, I remember growing up during the Cold War under the threat of a nuclear apocalypse Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and hearing that word being used of what's it going to be like in a post-apocalyptic world and you have the Mad Max movies and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, where, okay, it's a pretty bleak place, but the purpose of the true apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, was to bring comfort that as we see the end of the story, as it's given to us in the scripture, that Jesus wins. And because of that, we get to win with him. Hmm. But that's just one way in which stuff about end times has kind of gotten regurgitated by the culture in ways that are not helpful. Just the co-opting of that term is one of those ways. And even the term revelation if we could like somehow distance ourselves from the Bible for just a minute and mm-hmm. think about that word, mm-hmm. we use it outside of the context of an apocalyptic book in the Bible. We think about somebody who 
like literally thought through something for the first time mm-hmm. and had a revelation. Mm-hmm. It's more positive. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yet as soon as we apply it to the Bible, all of a sudden we're back to <coughs> the zombies yep. and armored vehicles <laughs> and mass destruction. Yeah. So let's talk some more about zombies and mass destruction, <laughs> although maybe it. not so much the zombie part. <laughs> our text for this conversation, as it was in our last conversation, is Revelation 20. Verses 1 through 4. Elisa, would you read those verses for us today? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years." Okay. Are you sure it's not apocalypse like what we described? Because this is saying a bunch of beheaded people come back to life. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good catch, Danny. <laughs> Once again, the key phrase there is a thousand years, which mm-hmm. seems to be a very specific number. And it's repeated several times in the text. And as we saw in our last conversation, it's how you engage that term a thousand years. that kind of determines where you land on the eschatological spectrum, if you will, eschatology being the doctrine of last things. Again, in our last conversation, we saw two of the four major views. What did we see just real briefly in our last? A preterist, which preter was from the Latin meaning past. And that view held the things that are described in Revelation as kind of precursors to the return of Christ have either completely already happened within the generation of those who were the original disciples, especially looking at with the emphasis of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, or partially has already been fulfilled and just waiting for some other things to take place. So that was the preterist view. Okay. And then you uh, introduced us to post-millennialism, which means after the millennium. And the idea there was that that thousand years had already started and we were waiting for it to end. And then once it ended, that would be like, I guess when Christ came back, I, yeah. I was a little hazy on that yeah. one still. But, <laughs> uh, but that, Yeah, the term the millennium refers to the thousand years, but it's seen as the thousand year kingdom. And what we saw is that when you see some of the descriptors of that in Isaiah of peace and prosperity, the lion laying down with the lamb, all that kind of stuff, There was a period of time at the turn of the 20th century where people thought, man, everything's great. Look how good life has become and how much better the world is, and it's only going to keep getting better. Therefore, we must be in the kingdom. And as soon as that ends, Jesus is coming back. And of course, as we saw, World War I happen and kind of shot that to pieces. So So it begs the question, we've had some conversations about time before, you know, is this a literal 1,000 years? Is that what these words generally mean? Well, 
and again, that goes to how you determine where you're going to land eschatologically is whether you think it's a literal period of time or if that's a symbolic figure or, you know, a reference to an era or a period but of time. But the words are specific. Very specific, okay. yeah. So it's like in Peter where a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. It's like, oh, okay, well, is that like symbolic as well or is it yeah. literally like... God determines a day for him after he sees us accomplish a thousand years or whatever it is. Yeah. And again, we're going to talk about the two final positions in a second. But to respond to your question, Elisa, I think if you take the book of Revelation literally, it leads you down a certain path on where you end up on this stuff. If you don't take it literally, then all the symbolism and stuff has to take you someplace. And the thing that I keep coming back to is even if everything in Revelation is symbolic, it's symbolic of something that's literal. I mean, a symbol represents something else that's actual. Okay. And so however you handle that is going to determine where you land. And for those who do not view that thousand years as literal, the primary position is called millennialism. It's millennial with an A in front of it because A negates things. Okay. A theist mm-hmm. is somebody who says there's no God. Mm-hmm. An amillennialist says there's not going to be any literal thousand-year kingdom. This is symbolic. It is figurative language and shouldn't be taken literally. Yeah. Okay. yeah, and the idea there is that when Christ does return, whenever that will be, that the new kingdom starts. And so okay. the thousand years really just is a general idea of a long time or something yeah. like that, that we're waiting for Christ to come back. And um, there are... Many Christian denominations that hold to the amillennial perspective today that the thousand years is not to be read literally, and so therefore they are amillennial without a millennium. The fourth view is probably the one where we've seen a lot of struggle. And when we started this series of conversations talking about the book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and then the Left Behind series, those came out of a camp called premillennialism. And obviously, post means after. We saw postmillennial yesterday. Pre means before. So the view of premillennialism is that Jesus is going to come before the millennial kingdom begins and that he will establish that kingdom on the earth and that he himself will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. That's the premillennial view. And that's kind of the view you end up with if you take the the words in Revelation literally, because you end up with there will be a literal kingdom. It will look a lot like that stuff in Isaiah. And Jesus will be physically ruling and reigning as king on the earth in Jerusalem. And that's kind of the pre-millennial perspective. Now, we've looked at all four of these views. I'm not going to ask you which one you ascribe to. I'm not even going to ask you if you care uh, about these four (laughs) views or not. But can you see where the points of conflict are and why there is disagreement Mm -hmm. among Mm -hmm. Christians Mm -hmm. on these things? Right. And I think the one thing that when you say the word literal, I have to keep reminding myself that even that word is sometimes misunderstood when we talk about, do I believe the Bible is literal? Mm -hmm. For some people, Mm -hmm. they hear that and they think, do I believe the Bible is true? Right? Whereas in this particular context, when we talk about how to read Revelation, the question is more about, do I think like a thousand years is symbolic or do I think the a thousand years is an actual thousand years? In the same way that you could ask about if something else in like a parable 
Do I take the Bible literally? Yes. Does that mean I believe the parable actually happened in real life? No, it was because it was a story. So it's symbolic that I need to draw That's principles helpful. from. Yep. And that word is even trickier because we're like, he's literally the greatest baseball player ever. And I'm talking about somebody that just hit a home run. Right. Oh and gosh. he's not the best player yeah, ever. It's not Babe Ruth. Say that. No, Roberto yeah. Clemente's the greatest baseball <laughs> yeah, player of all time. So like, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, to maybe make a difference... When we talk about taking the Bible literally, we basically are saying we believe that it's true and that means what it says. When somebody takes it hyper-literally, it's almost like every single thing has to boil down into something specific that I can identify. And so you have the locusts in the book of Revelation that sting with their tails and stuff. And I've heard some people interpret that as like attack helicopters right. and stuff like that. You know, well, Or even here, right? A dragon is mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So is that a literal dragon mm-hmm. like we see in Tolkien? Or is that a metaphorical something, agent of destruction or something like that? And that would be an example where a hyper-literal reading (laughs) would be, it has to be an actual fire-breathing dragon. I'm giggling because a literal dragon, as we see in Tolkien, which is fiction, (laughs) I'm not sure anybody's ever seen a literal dragon on the planet, but it's probably true. So, you know, when we think about this, a lot of it really comes back to how we're going to approach and read the Bible. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that, we talk about that a lot on this program. And sorry, just also the genre. Yeah of apocalyptic literature, is it meant to be taken in that sense literally, or is it to be read with a different kind of eye? And some say yes, some mm-hmm. say no. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's division mm-hmm. on these things. Mm-hmm. How you choose to approach the scripture mm-hmm. is going to somewhat determine how you read that thousand years, which is going to take you down yeah. a particular track. And I'm also just always wanting to be reminded of the context of the people that John the Apostle is writing to Mm -hmm. and why. Mm -hmm. And we see that the primary concept there is comfort for people who are experiencing suffering. This is what the ESV study Bible puts in the notes in its introduction. Jewish apocalyptic literature flourished in the centuries following the completion of the Old Testament canon, perhaps in part to help the oppressed people of God Mm. find purpose in Mm -hmm. their sufferings and hope for their future in the absence. You know, so it's like this aspect of like people looking for comfort and suffering in the midst of a challenging and even oppressive context. Persecuted. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, sometimes lost in the conversation. Well, and we've talked about how our own cultural context can impact how we read the scripture. Mm-hmm. Let me read a quote from a scholar named Alan Bandy, which I think can be really helpful to us as we talk about not just these different views, but the differences that they create and sometimes the division. He wrote, the question of the millennium is an in-house family debate among Christians and requires diligent study coupled with a willingness to engage robustly in biblical text and its interpretation. The differences between these views are the result of hermeneutical, exegetical, and theological perspectives of Revelation 20 and are not a matter of heresy versus orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Really important point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The hermeneutical questions one may resolve include how to interpret the language and imagery of Revelation, whether to take numbers as literal or figurative, and how to approach the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says the various views, if not anything else, provide ample evidence 
evidence of the difficulty and complexity of interpreting Revelation 20 and related passages, and this warrants a healthy dose of humility when approaching it. Amen. And I think that that's a really good place to land because the moment I think I've got it all Mm -hmm. figured out and nailed down, I've just declared myself to be the smartest Christian who's ever lived. That's hardly a healthy dose of humility. I think when you come to these kinds of issues and you see so many diverse opinions held by people who love Christ and love the scriptures, Mm -hmm. I think we need to say, okay, we may disagree on this, but what if I'm wrong? Instead of just assuming you're wrong. That healthy dose of humility would be very useful right now. reality is we don't know exactly what the future holds or exactly what it will look like when Jesus returns. But what we do know for sure is that he is coming back. But because we don't know, but we do have some hints, we tend to disagree. And because we have differences about this, we want to talk about some of the dangers of these theological debates when we lose sight of the humility that Bill was talking about at the end of that last segment. And so as we move into the next part of this conversation about this, I'd like to play something for you. It's some remarks that former Discover the Word group member Haddon Robinson made at our farewell gathering for him and Alice Matthews back in 2013. Uh, Just some context, Haddon led these Discover the Word conversations for 23 years. But uh, in his early 80s, Parkinson's disease made it impossible for him to continue with us. And then he passed away just a few years after retiring from Discover the Word. But uh, in his remarks at that farewell gathering that we had for him, uh, he talked about the second coming. When I was uh, 17, going on to adulthood, one of the uh, phenomena that was going on was people talked a lot about the second coming. They did back in New York where I grew up and they did where I went to go to college. Back in those days, when you had a message, you wanted to involve people. So at the end of the message, they'd say, how many of you are looking forward to the second coming? Hands would go up. How many of you make this the center of your life? How many of you promise from here on out you'll be guided by the second coming? (laughs) To be honest, I would raise my hand because I didn't want to look like a jerk, but (laughs) I wasn't particularly interested in the second coming. I mean, I had plans. I wasn't going to object to his coming, but this was not a big thing with me. And then, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking about that. And it occurred to me that I have nothing on my agenda that the second coming will interfere with. (laughs) Come any time, any place. Well, in this next segment of our conversation here on Discover the Word. Uh, We're going to touch on some of the things that Haddon mentioned about the second coming. How interested are you in thinking about and talking about Jesus' return? Well, they're going to continue by laying out some cautions related to how engaged or not engaged we might be in thinking about Jesus' return. And by the way, there's more to Haddon's remarks. And I think after listening to this next part of our conversation, Hearing the full version of what Haddon said is going to be insightful. Okay, so we'll do that after Bill and Elisa and Daniel and Rasul finish this part of their conversation about Jesus' return. 
We've been talking in this set of conversations about end time things. And one of the things we've talked about is that historically, and whether it's at the same level of intensity today as it often has been, historically, there has been a fair amount of division within the larger body of Christ over how we view those end time things. That's not the only <laughs> area where we have problems with each other. I really? Mean, no, I mean, other than you, Daniel, you get along with everybody, but some of us find ourselves at odds with one another on different things, like women's roles in the church or how we understand Genesis chapter 1 and the study of origins and things of that nature, how we understand the cross and what Jesus accomplished there. I mean, we know he died for our sins, but why does that take care of me and forgive me? And so it's in the outworking of it that we often find disagreement. And such is the case with what we've been talking about in these conversations with end time stuff too. So just to kind of catch up on where we've been, Mm. what have we seen so far? Well, that there are four major views or lenses with which to interpret the end times, all based on how we understand or treat the a thousand years that Revelation 20 and other places talk about. And that all are within really the framework of what we would say of orthodoxy, that quote that you yeah. read from Bandy in our last conversation, that these are not questions of heresy versus orthodoxy. Yeah, that's really important. Mm-hmm. Then we also looked at the overall piece of those are areas, four areas we might go to our corners on. And then even within that, there may be subcategories, okay, to be thinking about. But the overall piece that Christ came, that he died that he rose and that he will come again, you know, are essential. And we agree on those. And then how it all happens is maybe less essential to our salvation, but important for understanding. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of scholarship that goes into all those things. And I think it's just important for us to understand that even though we can have very healthy conversations about these areas where the church tends to experience division, there are also some very dangerous things that can come along Mm. and ride along with it. And especially in the area of end time things, I think there's some specific potential danger points that we need to be careful to avoid. And one of them you've already talked about, Rasul, and that's that this is not a matter of orthodoxy versus heresy. Mm -hmm. This is a matter of interpretive differences, not basic fundamental doctrinal essentials to use your word Mm -hmm. and we kind of need to get off our high horse on that and sometimes um, some people can get very judgmental and exclusive and truly exclusive you can't be in fellowship with me because you think differently you know i think we need to be careful about that yeah and it's hard to be careful because typically those are pretty major blind spots in our lives like typically when we approach things like this it's like wow how does that person see it that way how did they come to understand it that way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there's just like this hidden assumption that i have a more clear understanding Mm -hmm. or my understanding is more complete Mm -hmm. or i've learned more than they have or Mm -hmm. something like that and that's the first danger that I would kind of throw on the table is the danger of what I call spiritual snobbery. Mm. (laughs) I've got it sorted out Mm. and everybody else is playing catch up, Mm -hmm. you know, but somehow I'm ahead because I've got it right and they've got it wrong. And I read a book a number of years ago and it was a book on how to interpret the scripture. And it was a kind of complicated hermeneutic and so forth. And I kind of got lost in the weeds several times reading that book. But what I really appreciated was the last chapter, which is entitled, 
what if I'm wrong? Oh, that's great. And I thought, you know what? There's a good, healthy humility there that I could probably learn from in the way, not just in the things that I believe, but in the way I hold the things I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, What if I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, and to give an honest hearing to a different view in some of these areas that are not essential. And to be sincere, you know, our desire to get it right Mm -hmm. is commendable. I mean, we want to please Christ. We want to understand the word. We want to apply our understanding. We want to live according to it. You know, that's commendable. But our unbending and flexible insistence that we're right Mm -hmm. could be a matter of just really trying to control. And we've talked about that before. You know, when we started out these conversations with Jesus' words in the upper room, do not let your hearts be troubled. You know, you know, I'm going to come back, you know, I'm going to go prepare a place. I'm going to come back and get you. And that's what we know for sure. And the humble posture of coming from that place is super important. And it's ironic, right? Because that's where we started this conversation, but then we've gone on to have nearly four conversations on how troubled we get about this topic. So maybe if nothing else, there's a little criteria in there for us. If my interpretation is causing fear, Mm. is causing anxiety and stress in myself, judgment, or in others, Mm -hmm. or causing judgment, Mm -hmm. I might need to Look at it again, because mm-hmm. Jesus started with, don't let your heart good. be troubled. The yeah. other part, just to that point, and maybe there's some relationship between the striving to know and be right and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Because when I think back about hmm. Jesus, either in John 14 or even later on, he continually tells them, you're not going to know. Mm-hmm. Like, exactly. don't, don't worry about the specifics. Mm. Just know I'm coming back. Yeah. Even in Acts 1. And right? it feels yeah. like that is an approach to the mystery of the thing that is inviting us to trust, not in just the fact that I know exactly when, which puts more of the emphasis on me, but to trust in the one who said he would return exactly when Mm -hmm. he intended to, exactly when I need him to. And up until that point, I'm exactly where I need to be. And maybe that shift Mm -hmm. itself Mm -hmm. gives me an opportunity to relieve the anxiety of not knowing. Yeah. And again, you mentioned Acts chapter 1, Elise. Would you read Acts 1 verses 6 through 7? Sure. Because that kind of gets to the point of what you were talking about, Russell. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the day? Is this the day? Is this the day? (laughs) And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Okay, so automatically, when somebody starts setting dates, you know they're wrong. (laughs) Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. We may not know completely who's right, but we do know that the person who starts setting dates is wrong. Mm. Because Jesus said that's outside our scope of capability and something that the Father has reserved for himself. And speaking of the need for humility, this is such a beautiful example to me. And this one's been just etched in my brain for a long time now. So you have the disciples. They lived with Christ. They saw him die. They saw him rise again. They heard all of his teachings. And here afterwards, what is their assumption? That he's going to be the kind of king that they (laughs) thought he was going to be before he came. Mm. Right? Like, oh, now you're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to take the throne back. We're going to kick out Rome. (laughs) And so even the people that spent the most time with Jesus still were missing it here Mm. in Acts. And if they missed it, 
how likely am I, who I didn't yeah. spend one-on-one time with Jesus for that long, how likely am I to miss it too? Yeah, totally. We talked about spiritual snobbery as a potential danger. Another potential danger, which we've talked about in some previous conversations very lightly, is what you could call escapism. Mm-hmm. You know, this world's a mess. I just want to get out of here. Oh, you hear that a lot. You yeah. know, it's just like, Lord, come back. And every prayer is that way. And, you know, it's good. It's a great hope. It's a fantastic hope. We don't live as those without hope. You know, that's yeah. what God's accomplished for us. You know, There's just this unrealistic... Um, it's not helpful to pour your heart out to somebody mm-hmm. who says, but the Lord's coming back. And that's their whole response. It is helpful, you know, to talk to someone who says, I'm really sorry for your pain. You know, I'm trying to trust in the hope that God gives us that one day mm-hmm. this will be over. You know, so, you know, there's a, a narrow differentiation yeah. there. I think especially with generations younger than me, there's an avoidance of talking about the return of Christ for this express reason, because they want to engage the world. A lot of creation care thinking comes out of, you know, who cares if this world disintegrates because Jesus is coming back anyway. So that's what matters. That's right. And I think a lot of younger people, Daniel, your generation maybe, view that as escapist thinking instead Mm. of responsible thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what really bothers me, I'm just going to get on a soapbox for a second, and those that are in my generation and that we talk about these things, is when older generations look at us and they're like, see, the world's falling apart. We just got to get out of here and get to heaven. It's like they're saying, your life, your generation doesn't matter. Yeah, And that's the escapism that I think Mm. is most irritating or frustrating or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. like, no, I want to get married. Mm -hmm. I want to have kids. Mm -hmm. I want to live a life Mm -hmm. and all that. And what you're saying is it would be better for all that to get wiped away. And I think that's what makes it really hard to swallow. Yeah. And that's kind of a chronological snobbery of Mm. our generation matters the most. And the reason people say, well, Jesus said he would return. It's 2000 years. Yeah. But we weren't here yet. (laughs) <laughs> we weren't here yet. Now that we're here, that he can good. come. Yeah. You know, so that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And now that I'm mature and old and yeah. I've got body aches and pains, okay, now. <laughs> yeah. But the danger of escapism, Daniel, can feed into a mm-hmm. equal and opposite danger of ignoring yeah. this great hope. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to ignore it either because clearly Jesus talked yes. about it. Paul talked about it. I mean, the scriptures tell us Jesus is coming again, and that should be a good thing. Right. Yeah, I feel like these polarizing responses kind of maybe indicate to what extent am I too afraid to engage in the messiness of the world? Mm. And so I just want to hit the eject button and just not deal with it. Mm Or to what extent I'm so in love with the world that I don't want to think about (laughs) the fact that there's something better and beyond. And it seems like when I see Jesus saying, Lord, when he prays the high priestly prayer in John 17, Mm -hmm. you know, he asks for the father. Like, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, Mm -hmm. but that they be in the world, but not of the world. And that's this tension of holding to a future hope and yet at the same time Mm -hmm. not abdicating my responsibility to shine light now. So no matter which view you land on with eschatology, 
there are danger points of overreaction that can rob us of our hope, as mm-hmm. you say, Elisa, mm-hmm. rob us of the responsibilities of engagement, mm-hmm. as Daniel and Rasul, you've mentioned. And I think we just need to be real careful. Again, the whole idea of humility and how we hold our convictions on these things becomes really, really important. Yeah, really good, honest conversation in our series called He's Coming Back. And as I mentioned at the beginning of that segment, uh, we'd like you to hear the full version of Haddon's remarks at that farewell gathering that we had for him. I think that will give you even more insight into what we discussed in that segment. And I'd like to invite Daniel to come back and join me to respond to what Haddon said. All right, so Daniel, first let's listen to all of what Haddon said almost 10 years ago already at that time of his retirement from Discover the Word. Here it is. When I was uh, 17, going on to adulthood, one of the uh, phenomena that was going on was people talked a lot about the second coming. They did back in New York where I grew up, and they did where I went to go to college. Back in those days, when you had a message, you wanted to involve people. So at the end of the message, they'd say, how many of you are looking forward to the second coming? Hands would go up. How many of you make this the center of your life? How many of you promise from here on out you'll be guided by the second coming? (laughs) To be honest, I would raise my hand because I didn't want to look like a jerk, but (laughs) I wasn't particularly interested in the second coming. I mean, I had plans. I wasn't going to object to his coming, but this was not a big thing with me. And then, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking about that. And it occurred to me that I have nothing on my agenda that the second coming will interfere with. <laughs> you can come any time, any place. When I was looking at Paul's last words to Timothy. In a very tiny way, I'd like to approximate them. Paul said, I'm ready to depart. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. Not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. That truth means more to me today than it ever has in my life. Yeah, Haddon was amazing, wasn't he? Uh, We do miss him. And are so thankful for all those years that we were able to learn so much from him here on Discover the Word. I know every time you play a clip or something from Haddon, I'm just, man, I wish I could have spent some time in person with him. And sometimes I feel like I get to because you've been so influenced by him that, <laughs> that, uh, that, that I kind of am. Yeah, I think I quote him a lot, don't I? <laughs> yeah, but I just, man, the, the wisdom that he can tie together into what seem like opposite ideas and yet show the beauty and the good and the negative on both sides is just so helpful. Because what he said at the beginning of his remarks uh, sounded really similar to what 
you said yeah. during the conversation. What do you make of that? Yeah, I know. I was chuckling because that's exactly what I was feeling in the conversation with Bill and Elisa and Rasul. Is, uh, I have so many people in my life that talk a lot about that, care a lot about it. So many times it, it again feels like they're almost wanting to, to hit escape or to get out of this place or whatever. And I echo Haddon's thoughts. I have some life left to live. I have yeah. some experiences I don't have yet. <laughs> I have plans. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, Haddon was 17 in 1948. Hmm. <laughs> and so he was saying those things about having plans mm-hmm. in 1948. Yeah. And his plans, I mean, think about how much we've benefited from the fact that God didn't show up right. in 1948. Mm-hmm. There's so much that we've learned and take from what Haddon has taught us, which is just amazing. So, And then in 2013, he was 82. <laughs> and so he was remembering, but then turning it just a little bit yeah. to reflect a loving Jesus appearing yeah. time in his life. I just wonder, you know, with what I've come to know of him, but not just him, but the older, wiser people in my life. I wonder if that's because in some ways, when you've had a lot of the experiences the world can offer, there's almost a point at which you're like, every time God offers something, it's better. You know, um, I remember feeling a lot of the tension. um, I still do sometimes that he was talking about of feeling like there's things in my life I still have left to accomplish and there's things that I want to enjoy and stuff like that. I don't want that to be taken away. But at the same time, what I hear in those that have gone on uh, before me, and I don't mean like to heaven, I mean like in life, (laughs) Um, I hear people who they've experienced the best the world has to offer, and they always find that what God offers is better in some way. And maybe in some ways I'm just too young to have gotten to the end of that enjoyment yet, or I don't have the wisdom yet to look at money and physical pleasure and food and jobs and things like that and realize that as we talk about one of our other series on Ecclesiastes that it's vapor that it's not as important and meaningful as I thought it was right and some of us never get to that place where we understand that and so hearing Haddon talk about that I think it is a good corrective though uh, for us who are older and closer Mm -hmm. to that loving his appearing because life is behind us uh, idea to know that there are younger people listening that could take that the wrong way. And so putting it as an escape Mm -hmm. way of looking at the second coming isn't a healthy way of doing it either. It's more the loving his appearing part of it rather than the get out of the tough situation we're in. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder if it would just be helpful at times, like just with the reminder too, that um, the young people in your life, I'm speaking about myself, some of us haven't, again, gotten to that perspective yet of realizing that if God were to return and I didn't have some of the experiences I thought I really needed, when Jesus shows up, I'm not going to have a list of those things anymore. Those are going to f- fall away real quick. Oh, I never got to, you know, go to Rome you know, or whatever, <laughs> right? Like that's, I can promise you if Jesus shows up, that's not going to be my first thought is, hold on a second, Jesus, let me get on a flight go to Italy for a little bit. I'll be back. Then you can keep coming back. When God shows up, it's going to be like, wow, that's amazing. That's what I want. A better destination. Yeah. Well, thanks, Daniel. Uh, I'm going to send you back in now with the rest of the group, and we'll have Bill guide us through the concluding conversation in our series. He's coming back. 
You ever heard the phrase, a watched pot never boils? <laughs> yes. Is it true? Technically, no. <laughs> I mean, eventually it's going to boil. I mean, if you leave it well, on Well, if there, you turn it on, <laughs> yeah. it won't boil if you just watch it. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, how many times do we stand there staring at it, waiting for that first little bubble that yep. says, okay, we're almost now there. Now I put my pasta yeah. in. Yeah. Or to put it in maybe a more modern reference, you get the email from Amazon saying that your package is going to arrive today before 8 p.m. <laughs> so you start looking on your front porch at 7 a.m. But I'll be checking the front porch all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it depends. kind of depends on what's coming. Exactly. Right? <laughs> depends on what's in that package. Yeah. And I know in New York City, those rules don't even mean anything. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because of the traffic, I was just like, that oh. could mean tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been in these conversations, we've been talking about Jesus's promise that he would come again and receive us to himself from John 14. Mm. And the fact of the matter is he spoke those words 2,000 years ago. And like the watch pot that never seems to boil, if all we focus on is, is it today? Is it today? Is it today? I mean, it could be today, Mm -hmm. but there's 2,000 years of evidence that says probably not, (laughs) right? I appreciate that. Oh, Um, but we're supposed to live that way. I mean, I think about the parable of the 10 virgins. Yeah. It's in Matthew, I think, and they ran out of oil or some of them ran out of oil. And they weren't ready. And the bridegroom came and these unprepared virgins went to the prepared virgins and said, give us some of your oil. And they said, oh, no, we can't. You know, we got to go in. They went in and the doors were shut. And there is this, sounds super harsh, but I think this gentle reminder Mm. with a strong story of be ready. It could be today. What might it mean? And I think that's the larger point. If we take Jesus's statements on his return as they were intended, which we saw in John 14 was to give comfort and maybe in the book of Revelation to people who were in a time of extreme suffering Mm -hmm. to offer them hope. If we look at it from the idea of comfort and hope as opposed to a threat, then all of a sudden it becomes a whole lot different discussion and conversation. It reminds me of something that we kind of talked about in one of the conversations about if that is the heart behind it, not being anxious, not letting our hearts be troubled, trusting that Jesus completes the promises that he gives. And yet so much of our conversations typically about these things create more stress in us or more anxiousness or more fear. It's a good warning sign that we're probably on the wrong track if we're losing peace as a result of the way we're talking about Mm. Jesus' return. Mm -hmm than if we're gaining peace talking about Jesus's return. And to that point, Daniel, recently there was an article on CNN about younger people who have grown up in traditions that emphasize the return of Christ very heavily and in a somewhat heavy-handed way, mm-hmm. and the stress and anxiety and even a little bit of PTSD that mm-hmm. people have experienced because it hasn't been couched in terms of comfort and hope, yeah, but more of threat and performance, if you will. Yeah, that one woman in the article that's described as the house was so quiet that all of a sudden she was afraid, did Jesus come back and my whole family's gone yeah. and I missed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? That's not the heart that's that trauma. Jesus is yeah. presenting here. Yeah, John 14, one through three. Elisa, would you read that for us again? We started off our conversations yes. with this text mm-hmm. and I still think it's a great landing spot for us. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And that promise, I will come again, is reinforced in the immediate seconds following Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1, when the angelic messengers say, this same Jesus will return in exactly Mm -hmm. the same ways you've seen him go. So the promise of his return is a very real promise, and one that I believe is central. I don't want to sound flippant or anything, but there's a sense in which you can choose to believe whatever you want to believe about how it's going to happen, but you have to believe that it's going to happen. Mm. See, that's good. This phrase in here, if it were not so, I would have told you, is Mm. popping out to me right now. Mm. You know, we can kind of view God as a trickster. You know, when we get into this discussion of the end times of, you know, he's got this hand of cards and we can't figure it out. And he's saying, you know, figure out my magic trick, figure out what I'm trying to do. You know, that's not really why the book of Revelation is in scripture. It's not for us to figure it out. And if we get it wrong, we're out. You know, he's mysterious. He's all powerful. He's the almighty, the first and the last, the alpha and the mega, the beginning and the end. And if it were not so, he would have told us. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of fair presence he wants to be in our lives. There's this interesting exchange to your point, Elisa, that happens right afterwards where in verse four, Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Mm -hmm. Thomas asks, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? (laughs) I love Thomas because he asked the question that I would have asked if I'd have been sitting there. Right. So, and there's something about the where you are going that has to do with the specifics and the Mm -hmm. mechanisms. And Jesus responded, I am the way Mm -hmm. and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me, Mm -hmm. you know, so somehow as I struggle to understand the winds or the what's there's something about the comfort. And I go all the way back to thinking about kings. Like when you read kings and you read the kingdom of Israel and you see, and this king was bad and this king was bad and this happened. And even the good king still sinned, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's something about the expectation of a perfect king, of a perfect kingdom that will be ushered in that Jesus is saying, I'm the one that that provides a sense of comfort and hope. You know, for those of us who are experiencing the injustices and the just wrongness of living in a world with imperfect kings. Yeah. And rewinding even a little bit before kings, the people ask for a king and there's this rejection of God as their king Mm -hmm. early on in the story. Mm -hmm. And God tells Samuel, they haven't rejected you as their Mm -hmm. judge. They've rejected me as their king. Mm -hmm. And then the whole story of the scriptures unfolds to reveal Jesus, the king, who, unlike earthly kings that abuse power, that try to build themselves up, that harm other people, we have a king who's coming, who actually life is going to be better because we have a king than as we saw in Samuel, where mm-hmm. life gets worse for them because they wanted a king. Yeah, We have a king. Mm-hmm. We have a king, and he's promised that one day he's going to come and he's going to take us home. However you choose to interpret those processes, that's what he's promised. And when he says he's going to take us to the Father's house, I thought it might be good to wrap up our conversations Mm -hmm. by taking a look at how much better the Father's house is (laughs) than this broken, messed up world you were describing, Rasul, that we have now. Rasul, would you read Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4? 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. I don't know. That sounds like a pretty good place to me. Um, And um, I find that so comforting, back to that word of comfort, and so hope-filled that however he chooses to do it, I'll be glad when it's time to go Mm -hmm. because whenever it's time to go, it'll be the right time Mm. because if it wasn't the right time, the Father would choose a different time, and he holds the times and the seasons in his own power. Mm. Whenever it is that God calls us home, whether here, there, or in the air, as they used to say, Mm. it's the right place to be. It's the right place Mm -hmm. to go to. I don't want to belittle it, but this just feels like the perfect picture. Reminds me in the Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, when Gandalf shows up Mm. and Frodo's like, you're late. And he goes, a wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins, (laughs) nor is he early. Mm. He arrives precisely (laughs) when he means to. Yeah. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, we go to Return of the King, Mm -hmm. that there is this cooperation and this fulfillment of destiny that is involved when we align ourselves to prepare for the return of our King, Jesus, and that it somehow makes all of us better at what we were created to do, going all the way back to Genesis, what we were designed to do Mm -hmm. as image bearers. Mm -hmm. And that's something to look forward to. Yeah, we're wrapping up this series with some hope some encouragement for believers as we continue to wait for Christ's return. And I hope you've seen and been convinced that Jesus' return is important. It's a key part of being a follower of Christ. But we've allowed it to become something that it was never supposed to do, and that is be a source of division. So we need to keep that in mind. Well, you've been listening to Discover the Word in this episode featuring insights from Bill Crowder, who led the group this time, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day and Rasul Berry, all about the much-anticipated return of Christ. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And we're grateful that you chose to make Discover the Word part of how you read and study and engage the scriptures. We pray that these conversations, like our series on the end times, will help you make sense of God's Word as you listen and draw closer to Him. And we're grateful for the faithful financial support from friends like you who donate to make this small group Bible study possible. If you'd like to partner with us financially, you can give a donation of any amount online at discovertheword.com. There's a donate tab. It's actually a teal colored circle with a heart in the middle up at the top of the page. Click on that and you can partner with us and give financially right there at discovertheword.org. All right, well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries. 